Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Cedric L. Alexander, a former deputy mayor, police chief, CNN commentator, among other things, dedicates his new book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic, to those 22 million men and women who get it done for us every day. And he adds... They are true patriots. He joins us now to discuss what they do and why these unelected public servants have become the targets of political attacks recently. His book, which features a foreword by the late Congressman Elijah E. Cummings, is published by Barrett Kohler, and I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Alexander to our show now. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, Your book is about what you call the fourth branch, the unelected apolitical branch of government. How extensive is it? Well, you know, my thought, uh, Leonard, when I was writing this book actually uh, came to mind to me right at the, uh, right after the, right after the inauguration of our current president, uh, Trump. And it became very apparent to me with a lot of the language, a lot of feelings and things that were going on across the country uh, that I needed to say something in regards to those 22 million Americans out there who serve us every day and who are getting it done through us merely by, merely by the work that they do that oftentimes go unnoticed. And, you know, sometimes, as you probably have noted, over the last uh, number of years, uh, and this even predates President Trump, how many of our uh, non-elected officials, those public servants, go out there and do such a tremendous job for us in a way that sometimes, most times, we so often take for granted. And that they are the ones that I refer to as the fourth branch. In the fourth, fourth branch, not in this sense that there's some kind of deep state. They're not a deep state. I don't even believe in that, uh, that there's a deep state. But what you do have are American citizens who every day that get up and go to work, they work in local, state, and federal government. There are law enforcement officials. There are public safety officials. There are the men and women who, who keep the streets clean there in New York City and across the country. They're the attract. In counties and cities and in villages as well as the states and and the federal government. That's right. And in tribal communities. They're all over America. And they also include our military. And one thing that became incredibly uh, noticeable to me, it is that our career personnel, and these are career people, regardless of who's elected into office, at a local, state, or federal level, uh, regardless of who they may be, those career employees are the ones who carry out the mission every day. If I'm appointed as head of the CIA and you're appointed a head of the State Department, Leonard, uh, every 48 years we're going to be gone. And we're also going to go into those jobs depending on those career employees to get us through the day, to get us through the moment, to navigate us through the bureaucracy and, and, and hugeness of those organizations and what the missions are. At the end of the day, yes, you and I as appointees are, are responsible, but we cannot get that mission done without those folks who are the career employees who are doing it for us every day. And that was the impetus of me behind this book. 
partly because partly because you yourself have worked uh, in civil service all over the country. Yes, all you know, all my life. But I didn't write it just in sense of my own bias, but I wrote it actually in response to kind of where we are in this nation when it comes to partisanship and if when, when it comes to this tribalism that we all from both sides of the aisle are feeling that we're experiencing. And one thing that these 22 patriots, Americans who serve us every day, here's what they don't have the luxury of. Yes, they have the right to go behind the booth and vote for who they want to, but in the commission of their duties and the commission of their jobs every day, they're nonpartisan. They're out to serve. They're the, they're the essence of our republic and the essence of our democracy, I should say. So it is them who, 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 who get it done for us. And I didn't write it just solely on my experience, but for my compassion and the care that I have about the people who truly, truly, even under great scrutiny and criticism, continues to carry the mission out. Rather, they're whistleblowers, as we've seen here more recently, much of the pain and abuse that they have suffered, uh, they still stand before us. And even those, when you think about it, Leonard, during the shutdown uh, in Washington, D.C., how those federal employees, whether they worked in Forest Patrol, whether they were Coast Guard, whether they were TSA uh, uh, personnel working at our checkpoints, whether they were air traffic controllers, those were all career public employees who kept our nation going every day, even when they were not receiving a paycheck. And we saw our and we saw citizens across this country who stood with them and provided them with some of the resources that they needed to help carry them through until that crisis was over. So my hat's off to them. And that's who and what this book is about. It's about them. Not about me, but about them. Now, you say because they're unelected, they're nonpartisan professionals. But are, are, are you claiming that they can all resist uh, being influenced by their political beliefs? Although uh, it also is clear that influence. obviously they, they range from uh, Democrats to never Trumpers to far right conservatives, so mm-hmm. the, they cover the full political spectrum. But the, some of them have to make decisions about basic uh, aspects of life. Uh, are they, they really are not influenced by their politics. If you read the book, what you will find is that we all are influenced by politics. You and I both can be career employees working for a state or federal or local. Uh, a county or a tribal government, whatever the case may be here in this country. And even though we have our own idealisms about who we want to support, we have our own philosophical beliefs, but when it comes to the performance of my duty as a police officer, as an air traffic controller, as a military person, my mission is to serve. Yes, I get to support any elected official I want to, but within the context of my job as a career employee, 
those elected officials depend on me to provide them with the analysis, with the data, with the research, with the experience, with their training to make recommendations for them as elected officials that is going to have outcomes that's going to affect 300 million people in this country. So I'm not driven as a career employee by politics. What I'm driven by and it's the way that it was set up from the beginning is for me to have an opportunity to do my job without political influence or political threat because I am a career employee and I am protected by civil service. Now, you've worked in Florida, New York State, Texas, Georgia, uh, maybe other states as well. Is civil service pretty much the same wherever you are? Pretty much it is. And uh, certainly within the federal government, uh, which is kind of the standard bearer for state and local government. Uh, but any time that you work in any of those capacities, and even in particular in very unionized environments as well, you're going to have protection. You're going to have uh, uh, the ability to carry out your function without threat of being removed. I could be removed as CIA, CIA director. You can be removed as head of state department, but that career employee, you just can't, you just can't kick them to the curve. It doesn't work that way, and the system was designed. Is that partly because so many of these jobs are unionized? Well, many of them are unionized, but not all of them. So even if you're in the deep south, where you don't have traditional unions as you do in the Midwest or in the Northeast or and in some parts of uh, uh, out west, uh, you still have protection uh, within those local governments uh, that will keep you from harm uh, and where you just cannot be terminated, fired without cause. You and I as appointees uh, at a local, state, or federal level certainly uh, can just be dismissed without cause, quite frankly. Uh, when you have those, I've had that experience. Positions. I'm sorry. I said I've had that experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a civil service job. Mm -hmm. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, that was just. Uh, no, that was it. That was it. Okay. Well, so we're talking about 22 million people in 2019. Um, uh, how did their wages compare to people working in the private sector? You know, I have a whole chapter in there that relates to uh, some parts of the book talk about uh, this whole idea by some that government workers are overpaid uh, considering what it is that they do. Uh, there are some who would consider them not as hardworking, they're overpaid, they shouldn't be paid as much, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at their salaries, in comparison to those in uh, the private sector, particular, particularly in leadership positions. Federal workers don't make a whole lot of money. They really do not. And there are some, of course, senior executive positions where they can make a, a decent salary, uh, but in many of the everyday types of jobs that men and women do in local government, 
their salaries many times are nowhere near that of those in the private industry. And those in the private industry are held to a standard and to be responsible to do a certain level of work uh, that's commensurate to their salaries. And those in government, those 22 million Americans, uh, they also are being held responsible to do great work. And they, they oftentimes, it's not about money for them as much as it is about how they're treated on their jobs, and that's whether you're in the public sector or private sector. So their salaries oftentimes commensurate to what they do, and oftentimes they're many times underpaid, but their commitment to the mission, and I'm telling you this for having been around public service for 42 years, uh, Leonard, and having been one of those uh, people who didn't make a whole lot of money as a police officer in terms of what I was asked to do or an administrator uh, where I certainly could have made three, four, five times as much in private industry. But I'm not driven, and many of these folks are not just driven by money. They're driven by a commitment. They're driven by the ability to be able to serve their communities and their nation at large. And that's what separates them from many people. And some of them are even uh, volunteers. You call them right. the doers. Well, what about your subtitle to your book, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic? How can they save our republic, <laughs> especially right now? They get it done for us every day. They do it for us every day. We're still operational and functional. Here again, if you go back to the shutdown a couple of years ago, if those folks say, hey, I'm not being paid, I'm staying home, we would have been in a chaotic mess in this nation. But air traffic controllers didn't stay home. They came to work every day for weeks on end without a paycheck, not one pay period, not two pay period, but numerous pay periods. They came to work every day because had they not come to work, you could have shut down the entire transportation industry in this country. It is their commitment. It was their commitment, the federal agents who are out there serving on our borders, the Coast Guard who are protecting our shores, the TSA workers who are protecting and making sure that, that threats don't get up on aircrafts, the men and women who serve in our local police and fire and public safety communities. You think about all those individuals, the men and women who serve in uniform here in this country and abroad. They continue to carry out their job every day in spite of. Those are the 22 people, 22 million people who saves our republic. I'm speaking with Cecil L. Alexander, his Cedric. book. Cedric? I'm sorry, Cedric L. Alexander. I looked at Cedric and I said Cecil. I don't know why. But anyway, <laughs> Cedric L. Alexander, his book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We are listener-supported, non-commercial radio. When did the conspiracy theory that so many of the civil servants constitute a deep space with a hidden agenda dedicated to the overthrow of elected government come into currency? <laughs> you know, every political cycle, every new president that's elected into office, 
whether you like them or don't like them, whether they're on the right or on the left, whatever the case may happen to be, there always are going to be these conspiracy theorists who are going to make noise around the fact that there's some type of private clandestine operation that's taking place uh, domestically in this country to overthrow this nation. And that is the furthest thing to, I think, many of us from the truth. Uh, the president they, called uh, civil service an in, entrenched bureaucracy. Well, he can call it that, but here's a better question. Can you function without what he was referring to as a bureaucracy? It is not a bureaucracy. What it is is, is that it is thousands of men and women who have specific functions to carry out the daily operation of this nation in some of the most sensitive ways. But then again, I will also argue that if we think of them as being burdensome, and that's how I kind of interpret, uh, uh, take that statement, if we feel that they're being burdensome to us, they're not uh, performing, uh, they're not good employees, or whatever the case may happen to be, then as a leader in a free nation, I would certainly never articulate that to people who believe in their country, who love their country, and will do anything to protect their country, regardless of what side of the aisle that they sit on. So for me as a leader of the free world, I would certainly would not want to articulate for folks that their jobs are are more than what they should be and it's a big bureaucracy and and these are people livelihoods. This is their commitments. And this is how they support themselves and their families and their neighborhoods and their communities across this vast country. Now, the president's can, supporters... Oh, go ahead, finish your thought. But, but it's important that we're sensitive to their mission. And if we feel that a change needs to be made somewhere, then it needs to be explored, it needs to be researched, it needs to be analyzed. And guess who's going to do the research and analyzation and provide the data as to where we should streamline things or where we should build on it's going to be those same people, those same employees who's going to prepare that data and give it to elected officials to make an appropriate decision. We have to be very careful. We criticize American workers in this country, whether they work for government or whether they work for private industry. Because America's strength is built on employment, people being able to provide a welfare a general welfare for their communities and for their families. We have to do everything that we can. Yes, times are changing, and I understand that streamlining is important, but we also have to find ways to make sure that people are still integrated into a workforce that provides for the overall benefit of this nation, for them and for all of us as a whole. 
A little later, we'll talk about how a civil service developed over the course of American history. It's really you, you tell that story, and it's really fascinating. But since we're talking about the deep state, I'd like to focus on it just a bit more. The president's supporters use that term to refer to allegations that intelligence officers and executive branch officials guide policy through leaking and other internal means. They claim that the Trump administration has been hit by national security leaks at a, a much higher rate than his predecessors. Is that true? Well, I don't have any data to suggest that is true or is not true. But let's just take the assumption that the allegation that's being made and why it's being made, what I would be more concerned about uh, is, if I was in the White House, as to why are more leaks prevalent in my administration. And why is it in my administration as opposed to others? Or maybe leaks were just as prevalent in those administrations as well, too, but maybe was not as talked about as well. Well, for example, the failure of President Obama's plan to close the Guantanamo Bay prison camp has been attributed to the influence of the deep state. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but we can also say that in that administration... A lot of that, the things that we're hearing and seeing and experiencing is totally contradictory to what we're seeing and experiencing today. But here again, it all depends on what side of the aisle that you sit on in terms of how you would interpret the uh, uh, what, is, what is good and what is bad with all of this. Look, this whole deep state uh, thing is oftentimes orchestrated to create uh, conflict, to create separatism, to create tribalism, uh, to keep people divided and on edge, uh, to give this, this sense or notion that somehow the American people are working against each other in some horrible kind of way. That is not for the best interest in the nation, and these people live and reside next door to you, or whatever the case may happen to be. There is no deep state. What it is is what I refer to as those that are part of the fourth branch. And, the, and in this nation, we have the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branch of government that governs this nation, right? Mm-hmm. But you also have the American people who have influence and power through election, through their voice, to be able to create change. They're the fourth branch that I refer to as those who go out here again and serve and protect this nation each and every day. Elijah Cummings wrote uh, the foreword to your book, and he wrote in it that Members of civil service appear to be, quote, under unrelenting attack recently. Uh, so this is something he was observing as a member of Congress? Yeah. I mean, think about it. We hear the reports. I mean, at one point, our own intelligence agencies were under severe attack. Uh, 
by leadership in this country. And uh, and, and, I, and I often wonder when our intelligence community felt like they were being attacked and the work that they do, the sacrifices that they make, uh, the risking of their lives, uh, and have been for a long time, how that must make them feel uh, to be criticized. And career employees who have dedicated years of experience and training to keep us to keep us safe in this country and around the globe, how painful that must be for them. But yet, in spite of all that, Leonard, we still are being kept safe every day. They still go out and do their jobs every day. Our own intelligence community, that is oftentimes has been criticized, but they go out and they do it, and they will continue to do it because that's who they are. And regardless of who they voted for, didn't vote for, to them is insignificant. It's a commitment that they made to their work and to their nation. And uh, and we have to applaud them. And we have to hold them up. And we have to let them know that we appreciate the great work that we do. The same way we appreciate the great work that police officers and firefighters and our emergency management people and 911 operators do every day. Uh, if we have a fire, we don't call the president or, or a no. local congressional representative we call 911 call 911 that's your immediate first responder and uh, and they passed the message along and help us on the way within a matter of seconds within a matter of minutes no we don't call the White House when we're having a problem with our potholes in our streets we call public works we call city hall our local career employees and even our elected officials they are no stronger than the public employees those career employees who go out and do their jobs every day so do you think that it's just this environment that we have recently of conspiracy theories with radio hosts like Alex Jones and Rush Limbaugh and some of the people on Fox and elsewhere, uh, seeing conspiracies everywhere, Pizzagate, things like that. Um, are they, is this just an extension of that? Some of this is fabricated. Much of it is fabricated, as you well know, Leonard. But you know what? There's an audience out there for anything and everybody now. With the onset of social media, whatever your belief is, whatever your theory is, you can go up online and find somewhere, somebody in this country to agree with you. And host of people who will help you carry out your distorted message. And you also have to remember, too, for a lot of these talk shows, it's entertainment. It's playing on the, the empathy and sympathy of people who oftentimes can't get a grasp of things or they're looking for something negative hold on to or to be reinforced. Many of these talk show hosts know better. But it turns into an economic engine for them. 
to be able to continue to report these type of theories that they know have never been proven and are never going to be proven because there's an audience out there for anything and everything. But that's what fake news does. But you also have legitimate news from legitimate news sources that do research, that look at data, that attend to the science, that verify their stories, that do the investigations. And it's not blamed on some some idea that someone has in their mind to keep other people hyped up or jacked up about something that does not really exist. We got to get away from that. People have to read and determine for themselves. Why has the Congressional Budget Office come under attack, so much attack recently? Well, I don't know. But they're one of those organizations, I think, that, like many, Leonard, one of those parts of our government, if what they're saying is not resonating with what I want things to be as the leader of this country because Congressional Budget Office operates very independently. They are not, should not, and have not been in the past influenced by politics. Their job is to do exactly what the title uh, states that they do, manage our national budget. And whatever the bottom line is, is what it is. And if we're looking at considerable deficits that we face in this nation, it cannot be politicized. We have to tell the American people what our bottom line looks like. And Historically and traditionally, they have never come under that kind of scrutiny because they're saying the things that someone don't want to hear. And here again, the American people, I truly believe, are a lot smarter than what we oftentimes give them credit for uh, because none of this has anything to do with education. It has everything to do within the spirit and the heart of people of knowing what is right. And the CBO, just like many agencies within the federal government that have been attacked, this is a uh, new place where we are. And I would just encourage them who work in those roles, either as appointees or as career employees, that we serve a nation, uh, not any particular party, not any particular individual, but we serve a nation. And this nation depends on us to be truthful, to be forthright, to be honest, and to be able to share uh, with the American people what it is best for them. And when the CBO do their analysis, when they do their data research, they give that information to the elected officials in Congress so that they can make the appropriate decisions 
vote on the things that are to the benefit of this nation and to their districts as a whole. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. A glimpse of Rita Filling in a ticket in a little white book In a cap she looked much older In a bag across her shoulder Made her look a little like a military man Lovely Rita, need a maid May I ask discreetly When are you free to have a drink? Uh, even meter maids are civil servants I'm talking with Cedric L. Alexander, his book in defense of public service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic, published by Barrett Kohler. Let's talk a little bit about the history of civil service. Uh, You open your book with uh, President Washington's farewell address of 1796. Was there already a, a kind of civil service at the very beginnings of our government? Well, I think certainly think that was the intent. And one thing that was asked of President Washington was, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, is are we going to be a republic or are we going to be a monarchy? And his response was, a republic if we can maintain it. And what we're experiencing right now and what the architects of this country in the beginning saw very early on and had the vision to see down the line and even experienced very early on in the birth of this nation was the partisanship that can take place and how detrimental it certainly could be to the country. You quote him as a... Well, he he urged his fellow citizens to moderate the fury of party spirit, which was giving rise to a frightful despotism that serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. Well, that was uh, prescient. And then he also said that partisanship opens the door to foreign influence and corruption which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the the channels of party passions. That definitely sounds like something that's being discussed right now during the impeachment trials. But understand, this is not a new phenomenon. And even though we're seeing it at its uh, peak under this administration, as we saw under two other administrations that came up under impeachment, but there have always been threat to uh, mischief, if you will, as it related to those in, 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 in high offices or even in local government. But, you know, from my position, Leonard, and the impetus behind me writing this book was the yes for us to take a look at the historical context in which 
all of this began. But more importantly, to bring notice to the fact that we need to have partisanship in this country. There needs to be a difference of opinion. There needs to be a way to articulate our differences and then at the end of the day still realize that we all are Americans and we all want the very best for this nation in an unselfish way. But we've come upon an era in time in our nation now where this goes beyond just partisanship. This is hyper-partisanship. This is, this is uh, something I don't think we've ever seen or experienced before uh, with the American people. We're more divided, and there's nothing to, to herald them in this statement, but we're just as divided by political party as we are by race. We're, I mean, it's just that powerful. We still got the issues around race we got to resolve and to be able to respect differences. But now we're divided by political parties. And if you're not a Republican, I don't want to talk to you. If you're not a Democrat, I don't want to talk to you. It's insane. The American people are sitting out here waiting for someone to take the helm and say, hey, enough of this already. There are people, voters out here in this country, who are staunch Democrats, staunch Republicans, staunch independents. But what they want more than anything, Leonard, is for our elected officials to get it together. Because guess what happens? With those 22 million Americans, guess what happens to those other 300 million Americans in this country when something horrific happens in their local community or in their state communities or in their county counties or in their tribal communities? They don't play partisan politics. They come to the rescue of each other. Well, most of the time, the news the news is full of cases where uh, there have been biases or uh, situations that haven't been reported that should have been reported or certain people being targeted more than others. Uh, I'm not it's not a perfect that system. Does not happen. I'm not suggesting that does not happen. But I'm speaking in terms more of incidents if it's a natural disaster. Uh, if it's a school shooting, if it's something tragic that impacts a large number of people in some type of dangerous or desperate type of way. When the floods occurred in Houston a couple of years ago, people with all types of political backgrounds and, and cultural backgrounds came together to rescue and support each other. That's what I'm referring to. And that's the people who did it themselves. The American people in those cities who were there to support each other when something devastating occurred without the, without the permission or support initially from their elected officials. So let's go back 
to the beginning. What does the Constitution say? Didn't the framers recognize that the elected government of our republic was not in itself su- sufficient to, to govern us? How, back in, how far back in our history does the concept of civil service go? Right from the beginning. Uh, when civil service was, came into fruition, it became very apparent that you had an op- you we must uh, a president that is uh, elected into office, for an example, would have an opportunity to make certain appointments. It's called the spoil system. Uh, I'm sorry. It was called the spoils system. That's correct. But over time, they also came to realize that we must have people who have acquired the experience, the knowledge, and the training to be put into these positions without just mere uh, 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 favoritism shown by some elected official. So it has to be a process of qualifications, a process of elimination, a process in which uh, if I was elected president tomorrow and you, Leonard, are my friend, hey, I want to go hire Leonard to, to... to be the federal security director of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. I'm ready. <laughs> uh, but I would need to be able to have a process in place where Leonard would compete for that position mm-hmm. along with other qualified individuals. So when does that begin? You, you write a lot about Andrew Jackson, uh, a mixed yes. bag as a president, but... Uh, this was uh, he was president during a time when the country was growing and people wanted canals and roads and other public works and initiatives. Um, did was he, did he do a good job uh, in uh, setting an example? Well, it all depends on who you ask. Uh, Andrew Jackson was a big supporter of slavery mm-hmm. and did a great deal to uh, to keep slavery in place. Well, pretty much all the presidents until Lincoln, well, one way or another, either certain. either helped it along yeah, I mean, or looked the other true, way. But, yeah, I mean, I mean that is very, very true. Uh, you know, it was a time in this nation, but he was special, uh, also according to history. Uh, but to your question, I think that Andrew Jackson, uh, like uh, those who come after him, were looking at a nation that was evolving, uh, a nation that was still finding its way and still trying to identify itself and being challenged by its own democracy and those who believe that the country should be uh, run one way and others who believe it should be run a different kind of way. And each presidency in this country through the history of time uh, and as you will note in the book, we have their own experience around careerism, and we'll have their own experience around their presidency in that time of a fastly emerging nation, in uh, a nation that was still struggling with uh, uh, a great deal, uh, and slavery being one of them, the initial and tragic sin of this of this nation 
Well, so in the North, was civil service handled differently than it was in the slave states? I think there was a different sophistication in the North. Uh, not that the North was so much uh, psychologically or mentally or, or educationally advanced as the South. I just think that there were opportunities in the North, particularly in your larger American cities at that time, uh, where people may have been a little bit more forward-thinking. Uh, but it all depends on how you define that, because I'm very cautious to compare the North to the South or the South to the North, because at the end of the day, what you have is people. I think the North certainly evolved socially in terms of trying to benefit everyone uh, on one hand, uh, but yet on the other hand, if we look across this great nation today, uh, we have seen the South, which I grew up in, which I'm very proud of, uh, and, and in spite of its challenges and its ongoing challenges, to see how it has evolved to where it is at this very moment today. So, so did, historically. So did things start changing after the Civil War with people, President Grant, and then uh, the the presidents leading up to Roosevelt, and then Teddy, I mean, and then the uh, other presidents of the early 20th century going to FDR? I think so, gradually. Yeah. I think so. But I think for us, in terms of how we think about uh, what they considered progress and how we think about progress today, Many of us was really not seeing it's not being much different. 1820 wasn't a whole lot different than 1920, and particularly depending on who you were. If you were poor and white in this country, it certainly didn't make a difference. If you were poor and black in this country, it didn't make a difference. Uh, but as we continue to evolve and go through a period of reconstruction, go through a period of these different economic and evolution states that we did and America continued to progress and grow and become a leader of the free world, uh, we have seen great progress. <clears throat> and I'm more concerned about where we are today in making sure that we do not falter and that we don't find ourselves tailspinning socially economically, uh, spiritually back into a place that is not for the best benefit of this nation or of this world in which we have great influence. Now, is it different in other countries? Uh, for example, civil service was really a major part of uh, fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union as well. Um, but post-war Europe and other parts of the world, have they uh, established good civil service systems? I can't, I can't speak specifically to their systems. Uh, and it would be unfair for me to do so uh, because much of my research in the writing of this book mm -hmm. was really central to the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. and mm -hmm. where we have been and where we are at this very moment, and the concern of me 
millions of Americans as to where we're going to be tomorrow. Uh, but certainly those nations have, those foreign nations, uh, particularly many of our allies, and uh, particularly in Europe, our European nations and friends and allies, uh, have made uh, tremendous social and economic progresses. But I cannot speak to the history. I cannot speak to where they are today other than myself as a casual observer, as most Americans uh, pay attention to to global news in terms of what their challenges are. But how they got from from where they are now, what was their beginning other than the basic history, I think all of us have come to know and understand, particularly as it relates to war. Well, uh, the- I just for us as an American nation, we have overcome a lot uh, in the short 244 years that we've been in existence as a nation. We think of this very much in terms of party politics these days, and Richard Nixon is uh, is one of the villains of American history, and yet Richard Nixon, um, he uh, signed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, they created the EPA. Um, he uh, changed immigration laws of all, uh, opened up the country. All of these things now under attack by the party that he was a member of. Uh, so um, politics constantly changes. P- people today are saying that the, so the civil service is bloated and a monster. Well, you know, it's not the elected officials. Not the Trumps of the world and whatever his beliefs and ideologies may happen to be. Well, they're cutting the budgets of, of uh, the EPA and the Department of Agriculture. I, I understand that. But they are also, I think in many ways, as many administrations, they respond to what many of them feel that their constituencies want. And you have many constituents out there on both sides of the aisle, who don't work inside of government, who feels that uh, our government workforce is bloated. But uh, that may be based on uh, hearsay. Uh, Is it based on real science? And if it's based on science, I want to know what that is And how is it that we can streamline our bloated government, if that's the case? But how do we do it in a way that doesn't hurt people, Leonard? And if we're going to take X number of people, jobs away from them in government, and operate in a much leaner way, we should not just kick people to the curve. Uh, Oftentimes, as many of our major industries do, private industries to to lay off people to increase profits for their shareholders. I think we have to be very sensitive. I think we have to be empathetic that people who serve in government, whether they feel this bloated, whether we feel this bloated or not, that those people still have families and they applied for that job that was open, that was funded. And now, for whatever reason, if we feel that uh, we're spending too much money, where do we take those people? Where do we put them? We just don't kick them aside 
We just don't displace them because they're American people. They have families. They have homes. They have mortgages. They have responsibilities. And when people who work, those 22 million people, even within our military, when they hear that things are bloated, they have too much, they make too much, they got this, they got that, whatever, you threaten, they certainly feel fearful and threatened because their livelihood is threatened. It's the same way you and I would be. Now, we have very little time left, but I just wanted to touch on a bit of your background because uh, some of it uh, seems to be all over the place. You have got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. Uh, You've been a uh, professor in a department of psychiatry at University of Rochester Medical Center. Um, at the same time, you've been a first responder. You had a brush with Ted Bundy. Um, <laughs> you're all over the place. <laughs> Are these yeah, things well, connected? And- <laughs> well, yeah, you know, real quickly, just as uh, I went to school in Tallahassee, Florida, and University, historically uh, black university, and during my time there, I had to drop out of school because I got married. My wife subsequently at that time got pregnant. And uh, so I had to go to work, went to work for the sheriff's department there. And once Theodore Bundy was called over in Pensacola, they brought him back to Tallahassee because I was there doing the Kyle Omega murders there at uh, Florida State University. So I, being a sheriff's deputy, would get called in off the road, and I would have to transport uh, Theodore Bundy back and forth to court on several occasions uh, with a helicopter flying over the top mm-hmm. and a, a car behind me with a canine dog in it and we're escorters there and deputies would meet me and they'll take, him, take control of him at that time. So that happened on several occasions. Uh, I, I left Tallahassee, went on to Orlando as a deputy, then went on to Miami as a police officer. And in 19... Uh, 90, decided I'd had enough. I couldn't just leave, so I went back. Always enjoyed counseling people when I was a police officer. And, uh, so I ended up with a master's in marriage and family therapy and went on from there to do a doctorate in clinical psychology where uh, after I graduated, uh, I had a postdoc internship at the University of Rochester. That's how I got there in 1997. Okay, and, so just uh, one more thing. Uh, first yeah. responders often uh, are working under great pressure. Do, do they need to speak to therapists sometimes just to, to get past some of the, the, uh, the traumas well, that I they've think experienced? Anyone who's, I think anyone who's in the helping profession, particularly those that work in very uh, challenging environments, whether you're a 911 operator, whether you're a first responder uh, as an EMS, or whether you're a firefighter, who upon occasion see some of the horrific deaths that they may see as a result of fire or explosions. Uh, Police officers who are day in and day out are exposed to uh, tragedy oftentimes. Over time, cumulatively, any of us that are human beings, these events can affect us directly and indirectly. And, And probably instead of waiting for something to change, I think it's not a bad idea that upon occasion we go check in with a mental health professional and uh, to make sure that we're okay and then being able to look out for each other uh, in the profession and if we see that our colleagues are becoming uh, disheveled or their 
they're not attentive, their attitude, their personality is changing, they become depressed, are they acting out more than what they have? Uh, that's when it becomes an opportunity for all of us in the, in, in, in the uh, uh, public safety community to be able to say, hey, Mike, hey, Mary, you know, hey, I noticed something different about you. You want to talk about it? Because some people, sometimes people are crying out. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. Cedric L. Alexander, his book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic, is published by Barrett Kohler. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out London Located Lodge on Facebook, Facebook and Twitter and our website, LondonLocatedLodge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can write comments on all of those various places. Join us tomorrow when double bass virtuoso Sigurd Holm will join us for an in-studio performance. We'll see you then. And we hope that you'll do your part to keep WBAI financially secure. One way to do that is to become a BAI buddy. Um, uh, you can go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602 to become a sustaining member. Help us uh, continue to pay the bills. Uh, we ask you to think about $10 a month or $15 a month or more, whatever you uh, feel comfortable supporting us with, and you can do that until you decide you don't want to do it anymore. Again, the number, 516-620-3602, or go to WBAI.org and follow the instructions. And thank you. <laughs>